Hi, thank you for joining us on If She Can Do It, So Can You. My name is Amanda Creasy and I am your host. On If She Can Do It, So Can You, we aim to air a new episode on the first of every month so that we can share with you women's wisdom, wit, and grit in an empowering and inspirational podcast. I'm glad that you're here to listen as I talk to women about their trials and their triumphs while they share their stories of challenges they've overcome, barriers they've broken, stereotypes they have silenced, and dreams that they have achieved. My goal is that through each episode, you will be able to find your own strength, healing, and motivation through their success stories. Because if she can do it, so can you. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of If She Can Do It, So Can You. Today, we're going to be speaking with Lauren McManamay. Lauren is a registered nurse, advocate for mental health and LGBTQ plus issues, and a current psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner graduate student at Virginia Commonwealth University. She has presented on veteran mental health issues at the West Virginia Nurses Association and has been interviewed on the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy for the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Lauren is a 14-year Air Force veteran with multiple overseas deployments and currently serves as a flight nurse in the Air Force Reserves. Originally from West Virginia, Lauren has settled in Richmond, Virginia with her wife, Jasa, and her two dogs, Penny and Charlie. She adores spending as much time as she can on the James River, either in a kayak or hanging out on the rocks with her pups and traveling the world with her new wife. So welcome, Lauren. Hey, thank you for having me. Sure. So new wife. So you just got married? No. So I've been married <laughs> for five years. Five years I've been married. Okay. Some people might consider that newly wed, but yeah. five years. Yes. Okay. I mean, that is fairly new. I think yeah. the like official newlywed stage they say is like two years, but five years is still pretty fresh and new and exciting. It's still very exciting. So at times that's good. Yeah. That's a good thing. <laughs> Um, tell me a little bit about your dogs. I know before we started recording, I mentioned that my dogs are in the room as well and your dogs are in the room with you and dogs are some of my favorite things. So let's start there. So Penny and Charlie are two little pound pups we got in West Virginia. Um, they are here with me being very good and very quiet. I tried to put them in my other room, but they weren't having it. They wanted to be with me. Be with you. Yeah. Yeah. So they're both little rescues. Uh, Penny's a Rhodesian Ridgeback mix. And she's loyal and sweet and hilarious. Uh, and Charlie is a little uh, retriever type mix. And she's she's precious. She loves anybody and everybody. Oh, <laughs> so how old cool. are they? Penny is five. And I think Charlie is about six or so. She oh. could be 12. She could be six. <laughs> she's a right. little wild card because we got her right. as an adult at the pound. Did you adopt them together or were there was there a few years between their adoption? There was about a year between, so I consider Charlie Penny's anxiety dog because um, we got Penny because we had two pup deaths in one year, which was tragic. Mm-hmm. And so Penny was like a new addition and she had a lot of separation anxiety. Uh, so we, six months down the road, we got Charlie and it just like fixed everything. And they're, they're two little peas in a pot. They love each other. That's so sweet. When um, my husband and I first got married, he had a beagle named Sadie. And about a year, yeah, yeah, I guess it was about a year after we got married, maybe just a few months. I can't remember. We adopted another dog named Jack. And after we had the two of them together, we will like, we would decided we would never have only one dog again. Because yeah, it just makes such a difference for them to have a little buddy. 
Yeah. I never thought about it until I saw them together and it's exactly yeah. the same two forever. <laughs> yep. Yep. You can't, I would, I would feel mean having just one now, I think knowing how much another one enriches the other's lives. Exactly. So now you uh, mentioned before we started our interview that you were raised quite religious. Yes. What religion were you raised in? Evangelical Christianity. Um, kind of a split house. My father is Baptist okay. uh, and my mother was raised in the Pentecostal, um, I guess, uh, denomination, just a little bit more charismatic. So it was kind of a mixed bag, but I went to Christian school my entire life as well, except for my 10th grade year. And they are evangelical, primarily evangelical. And you are an advocate for LGBTQ plus, And sometimes it can feel like some religious space and LGBTQ plus issues, they can feel like they're at odds with each other. Yes. Do you still subscribe to any particular faith? Yes, um, I do consider myself a Christian still. I feel as though, especially for the past year, especially I've been going through my own journey of not deconstruction, that's kind of a popular word now, but sort of expanding my view on my faith because you're right, LGBTQ identity and the community sometimes feels at odds with Christianity, especially evangelical track of Christianity. So I do not consider myself evangelical in any way on the spiritual uh, periphery of Christianity, if that makes any kind of sense. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that. Now you're a lesbian, you're married to a mm -hmm. wonderful woman. Um, when and how did you realize that you were a lesbian? So I started realizing or questioning my own sexuality when I was about 18 or so. But because I was at a Christian school that that was never an option to talk about at all, they would expel you. Anyone that even got pregnant, they would expel. It was a very rigid environment. And then going immediately into the Air Force during Don't Ask, Don't Tell, I didn't really have um, a, a space to explore or to really want to think about it as much. So I started really owning my own, uh, I guess, orientation and who I am when I was about 20. I was stationed in DC and I had really, really good close friends that I consider family that helped me accept myself and just give me that space. Uh, so yeah, early 20s, just accepting myself. And it's been a journey since. Sure. Yeah, you know, for sure. Given the rigidity of the religious faith that you were brought up in and of the education that you received, how did you kind of come to terms with that realization? You, you had your friend group that sounds like they were super supportive, but I imagine there were still some inner struggles that you kind of had to face as you were coming to that realization, just based on your background. Yes, it has been a long <laughs> journey. There's this, there's this perceived incompatibility Mm -hmm. You know, that people have to work through that I have been working through when you're raised in a, a faith or any kind of uh, moral structure that provides this worldview code, essentially this protocol you have to kind of live with. Mm -hmm. And then you start realizing that a natural attribute that you possess is somehow incompatible with this prescription that this religion has given you. It's very disjointing mm -hmm. and it can be quite traumatic. Yeah, I'm sure it's um, really painful. It's extremely painful. So I have found amazing friends that have supported me. My family is coming along. I have an amazing brother who's so wonderful and supportive and therapy. <laughs> Just, <laughs> you know, 
just um, working through that disjointed feeling of that I am incompatible. I I am unwhole. I'm not mm-hmm. right, you know. Right, um, like this is something that has to be fixed in order for you to fit back into that. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. So in, in things like policy does matter. The Air Force gave me a sense of identity as an 18-year-old from rural West Virginia. It gave me an opportunity to get out and see the world. And so when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed, it was life-changing. I mean, it genuinely was to be able to be accepted in an organization that gives you a sense of purpose, you know? Right. Acceptance. It's a big, it's a big deal. So that's been a helpful part of my own process. Makes you feel validated probably. Exactly. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. So um, speaking of don't ask, don't tell and being able to come out to your friends and your family and, Mm -hmm. um, and your fellow, I guess, cadets, would that be the right term? Airmen. Yeah. Airmen. Okay. Um, When and how did you come out publicly? Because I'm sure that was a really difficult choice and probably really scary. Anybody in the LGBT community, they come out multiple times in their life, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I just sort of lived my life and did it exactly while I was active duty. My close friends certainly knew after the policy was repealed, I was able to just talk about my life more in a fluid way. Mm-hmm. And so I never, I think, had other than my family um, amongst friends. I never had like a, a situation where I would sit anyone down. Mm-hmm. I felt it better to just have a conversation or just mention, oh, I'm going on a date with this woman or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, let it naturally play out. Yeah, it's a lot easier as opposed to like walking around with some little stage and like revealing yourself all the time, you know? Right. Making it like a thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we've mentioned that you were in the Air Force during the time that Don't Ask, Don't Tell was the policy. Mm-hmm. What was that like for you? Because um, you did say it was around 18, which was when you joined the Air Force that you started questioning it, but you didn't have the space. So yeah. how did that feel? Um, it felt pretty scary. I did have an individual, an ex, threaten my career oh when, my I, when I tried to talk about it. And that was very scary. Still being religious, it wasn't something that I could go talk to a chaplain about. There was no confidentiality with the chaplain in that way, which is kind of bizarre. Yeah. Anything else is pretty much confidential if you go talk to a chaplain. So it was isolating. Mm -hmm. And it sort of compounded that idea of incompatibility with my faith. So when it was, well, during the time, I mean, I served with people who I knew were, were gay and you know, they lived their life. And I will say this, like each branch has their own culture. Mm -hmm. So my experience being in the medical field and the air force is entirely different than what a female in the Marine Corps may deal with. Different cultures, different ideas and stuff they have to navigate. So people were not going out of their way to, um, tell on people, for example, uh, Except for the, except for the person that I happened to be with at the time, right, right. But I, you know, looking up to people who who were NCOs that I knew were lesbians, um, I admired them. They had to hide their life, mm-hmm. you know. So 
for kind of a long-winded way, I guess, of saying it was isolating and, and inhibited my own acceptance of who I was. But mm-hmm. yeah, it sounds very stifling to have to hide to hide that. That's a lot to hide, really. Yes. Yeah, it is. One of my mentors and people that I admire the most, she spent the majority of her career, she's retired now. She was in a relationship with her partner uh, for over two decades, an Air Force officer, a nurse, an amazing person. Uh, and she helped raise her partner's son from two to adulthood. Wow. And when she deployed, she'd have his picture, but she had to tell people that he was her nephew. Mm. So, you know, they wouldn't raise any issues and right. too much. So, right. That's a terrible thing to have to lie about. Yeah, <laughs> it is. I mean, yeah, that, I mean, every time I would imagine every time she told that lie, it felt like a little stab. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I would I would think so, to say the least. Yeah. So I'm thankful my career during that period was more short lived than mm-hmm. the longevity of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. uh, <laughs> you um, you wrote to me at one point in our email exchanges that a happy and fulfilling life is possible through authenticity. Mm-hmm. And I pulled that out because that uh, statement that you made in and of itself is just very quotable. And I was wondering if you could expound on that a little bit, explain maybe what your what authenticity means to you and how you think someone can find their authentic self. That's a very good question. For me, I think that any person has to identify to say the cliche, a North Star. Um, I think that we're all born with a compass, if you will. And we have to recalibrate it throughout our life. And mm-hmm. I think that that's the authenticity is that true north. You have to be patient with yourself. And I think honest with yourself and allow yourself to go through the painful process of acceptance, despite what everyone else tries to tell you. And a lot of times that requires you to remove yourself from, you know, toxic relationships, even if that's close family. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, throughout our life, if we if we constantly keep ourselves in a box, we can never be true to ourselves. So we stifle our life, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think authenticity is acquired by honesty, keeping good people who will tell you the truth no matter what and help you, guide you in the right direction. Those are true friends like that are invaluable and help save my life, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so surround yourself with true people, um, and be willing to go through sometimes the painful process of just self-acceptance. Mm-hmm. How do you feel like you were able to discern which of those relationships were toxic and which of those relationships included friends or family who were guiding you in that right direction? So I think that my barometer was anybody who tried to tell me or force me to be something that caused a great amount of pain mm-hmm. unduly without explanation, other than this is what something says, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's scripture or whatever, you have to suffer. And that is where true purpose is. That's toxic. People in your life who help you bloom and blossom as a person, being your true self setting healthy boundaries. Those are the the ways that I discern who I want in my life and who I don't want in my life. Mm -hmm. And there's a difference between like somebody who's just like, Oh, we're going to go have a free for all. Obviously we do. We have morals. We do right things. 
But if anybody wants to keep you down uh, at the expense of your mental health or just keep you in pain and, t- and tries to tell you that suffering is, is the way, that's, that's, that's toxic. And that's prevalent in the, the religious path, if you will, that I had growing up. Mm-hmm. There has to be suffering to know that you're no pain, no gain type of thing. But, gotcha. you know, that's to me is toxic. So that's how mm-hmm. I discern the two. Is there a church that you attend now or is it more like a personal practice for you at this point? At this point, it's a personal practice. Um, I've gone to Unity here in Richmond. I've, it's it was, There's also a Unity Church in, in West Virginia. They're throughout the country. Mm-hmm. They're a sweet vibe. <laughs> They're very kind. Mm-hmm. And they sort of extrapolate truths that, from other spiritual practices or faith groups that they think are applicable to Christianity. They're accepting of anyone. I, I do enjoy that environment, but I currently just kind of have my own personal practice. Okay. <laughs> now we've talked a little bit about the fact that you're married. Tell me about your wife and how the two of you met. I love the how we met stories. <laughs> so Jasa is amazing and my best friend. She's just now got to the Middle East where she's deployed. She left on Tuesday and she just got there today. Wow. Um, we met in the Air Force. We met in the Guard in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first time I ever saw her standing in the office uh, and I walked by and I was immediately struck <laughs> by her. And we were friends for years, uh, just going to drill, which is like once a month we come, you know, to do our military duty or we'll travel on cross country sort of missions that will training events that we go out of the state to do. And as my friend, I just I I realized looking back that I had loved her for years And then that was mutual. And she eventually moved to Charleston. She was here in Richmond for a little while. And we just had this time in our life where we were both available and got together and just never looked back. I I knew that I, I knew I was going to marry her for a long time. So just pull Mm -hmm. real. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's my absolute best friend. She really, really is. How how long were you guys together before you got married? Less than a year. We kind of both knew pretty quickly that we were going to marry each other. Mm-hmm. And it, we we got together in 2016. And then I deployed in 2017. And before we deployed, we decided let's let's make things legal. So just in case, so we both have the mm-hmm. benefits and if anything happens, and then we'll have a ceremony later. So that's what we did. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she ended up deploying <laughs> as well unexpectedly. So it was nice though. I was in, she was in Germany and I was in Qatar. Mm-hmm. Okay. She's a, she was, we were both flight medics at the time. So she would fly down once a month okay. to do a mission and I would go out and we would see each other really quickly. And so it was really <laughs> quite nice. That's good. That worked out really well. It really did. <laughs> How did your friends and family react when you told them you guys were going to get married? We just got married. So yeah, so her family is amazing. There was a mix of like, um, we wish we would have been involved because we went to Scotland and got, we had our own, um, ceremony just the two of us Mm -hmm. people just wanted to be involved with it basically which is understandable yeah Uh, but her family is amazing my family is growing into it (laughs) they're 
a different a different bag of you know well the background there is yeah. very different and i'm sure that that the faith traditions in your family probably make it difficult for them to come to grips with with that part of your life yes yeah but my father does absolutely adore Jasa. <laughs> that's good adore her. yeah my family does adore her but you know the faith-based stuff mm-hmm. yeah Besides the faith-based obstacles, what obstacles have you and Jason faced as married lesbians? Our experience in the military has been overwhelmingly positive. It's great. Yes. Um, we've always been treated with respect, thankfully. We did decide to move out of West Virginia. We are Richmond transplants. Okay, me too. Um, <laughs> a lot of people here are. It's a wonderful city. We had to evaluate like living in West Virginia where there are a lot of LGBT people, of course, but it's a very, it's a less progressive state. I'll put it that way. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about, you know, future family planning, like, do we want to raise our children here? We felt like it was more of an obstacle living there mm-hmm. as opposed to living in a, in a city like Richmond, where it's not really a thing. No one thinks about it. Mm-hmm. Go to school. And I don't think anybody would make a big deal about having two mothers, but that might not be the case in <laughs> where I'm from. So mm-hmm. that, that's the main um, obstacle. Um, there was a weird scenario. We traveled together with the military to an African country to teach Arabic what we do, how to be flight medics, flight nurses, and exchanged training ideas with these other African nations. But in the African country we were at, it was illegal. We had diplomatic immunity, but it was illegal to be gay. Oh. And so I broke my wrist while I was there and had to be taken to a clinic. Mm -hmm. And so we we had to hide the fact that we we didn't tell anybody. Obviously, the people, the military people we were with knew America. Right. We couldn't tell anybody, so we were like, okay, we might cause an international incident if we talk. Yeah, that's, very, that's very scary, actually. Yes. Yeah. I was like, well, we have diplomatic immunity, so that'll be a good test. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll see how far we can take that. <laughs> right, yeah. So that's probably the biggest yuck-yuck, but um, nothing happened with it, so. That's good. That's <laughs> almost <almostly> good. <laughs> so you talked briefly that Richmond is a great city and you guys are mm-hmm. transplants. Why did you settle on Richmond particularly? I mean, you're, you're at VCU. Did that play a role? No. So I just moved here blindly with Jasa. Oh, wow. That was <laughs> adventurous. <laughs> yes. Yes. Jasa lived here um, a couple years before she moved to West Virginia. She worked with the CDC and the health department here. Okay. And she fell in love with it and, you know, met Julie that way, our mutual friend, and she fell in love with the city. And when we were thinking about like, let's get out of, you know, Dodge, mm-hmm. she was like, let's go to Richmond. And so we just looked for jobs and we moved like just, and here you are. I held it out of town. Wow. <laughs> yeah. How long have you been here now? Four years. Yeah, it'll be four years in October. Okay. And my family moved here when I was in high school because my dad got a job here. And um, they, my family has lived in four different states, Richmond being, uh, Virginia being the fourth one. And uh, we have like this little running inside joke because my dad loves it here so much. He'll, he'll muse like, you know, isn't Richmond just the best? I've talked about that on episodes before, but um, yeah, this is the place I've lived the longest and I don't really see myself leaving. It's a great city. It's great. It has yeah. the birth of both world, best, yeah. birth of best worlds. Like you can, the best of both worlds. Goodness. <laughs> you got on the river and on, you can have the city experience and all of that. 
Yeah, it is true. There's so much variety of terrain and activities and people and places. It's great. It's a great place to be. It is. Um, So you mentioned that, you know, you kind of credit the Air Force with letting you get out and see the world. Yeah. And you've mentioned a couple places that you were deployed to, but where all have you been deployed overseas? So I deployed to Germany, which is a pretty sweet place to be. I and spent nine months there in college. It is also a very sweet place to be. Yes. Oh, I, I love Germany. I could easily live there. It's beautiful. Um, Heidelberg reminds me a lot of West Virginia. It's like I can see that with the rolling hills. Yeah, yes. it reminds me of the Kanawha Valley. I'm like, oh, this looks like Charleston in a way. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Um, so, as a as a flight medic at the time, and as a flight nurse, we fly to other countries. So, being in Germany, we'd fly to uh, to Afghanistan often to pick up patients and bring them back. We'd fly mm-hmm. back to the States. So it's a, it was a very good deployment, a good experience. I've been to Qatar, which we fly across, you know, around the Middle East at the time, uh, picking up patients in Iraq and different places. I've been throughout the Pacific to take patients from Guam to Hawaii, back to the United States. And then I've been all over the United States and then Africa on, to, to share and exchange uh, training with eight other African countries on, on air medical evacuation and the Air Force, which was a very humbling experience yeah, um, sure. to see what other countries just do to evacuate their own citizens. And our system is so huge. <laughs> so, you know, it's so huge. We have hundreds of, of flight surgeons in the Air Force, and we met one woman who was the flight surgeon for her country. <laughs> wow. So, wow. <laughs> this woman is amazing. Yeah. That's so crazy. Experience. So I've been all over, all over the place. <laughs> yeah. When does Jason come home from her most recent deployment that just began? The end of October. Okay. So a few months. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, that is the nice thing. We have four month deployments for our particular job as opposed to the yeah. six month standard or more typically, yeah. you know, so we're counter blessings. We don't <laughs> try not to mm-hmm. complain about it. Yeah. I'm sure it's still challenging though, to be that far away from each other for so long. Yes. Yeah. yeah. What's the time difference between where you are and where she is right now? She's seven hours ahead. Okay. So you really have to plan your, your conversations. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Thinking back to the first time you were deployed what did it feel like to be so far away from friends and family and everything familiar? It was a mixed bag of excitement and, you know, just pining for home, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, going to Germany was the first time I'd ever been abroad or had been to Europe, certainly. And so the experience there was I realized how I feel like Americans are typically isolated from the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Every Everything's very Americanized. And so we kind of think that everybody just kind of goes along with that. But there's so much culture and, and differences. And the patients, you know, it was... It was my first experience doing my job as a flight medic. And, um, you know, it, it was uh, hard and rewarding at the same time. Um, seeing a variety of patients. And it was my first realization of how psychologically uh, heavy deployments mm-hmm. in general can be because we we take on a lot of psychiatric patients out of deployed theater. Yeah. Um, because you have an 18, 19 year old who has, you know, no or a lack thereof of intrinsic coping skills and you put right. them in the combat zone and then they're, you know, yeah. Having conflicts at home and the need to 
they're having a crisis. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a real need for psychiatric help. That was my first real exposure to that. Yeah, I'm sure that that was, you were pretty young then too. So, and you know, you have your first deployment. So you were probably grappling with some of your own um, anxieties and, and issues while you faced that first experience. Certainly. Yeah. So, what was it like the first time you came home? You said it really kind of broadened your cultural perspectives while you were away. When you returned back to the States, what was that like? Well, the first thing I was like, why don't we have more trains? <laughs> <laughs> trains, trains make sense. Uh, tra- traveling is more efficient. Why aren't our airlines cheaper? Things like that mm-hmm. um, for culture. And why are our, our sweets so sweet? Why are our pastries so sweet? Just things like that. But mm-hmm. um, it was a transition. It was awkward coming back to reintegrate with family. Um, at first you just kind of reestablish your routines and, and it was weird how awkward it was to be close to family again. I don't know why that is. Mm -hmm. And I've experienced this and and I've, I've spoken to my other friends that I deployed with about this when we come back and then you go like to school. Cause that's, I took a break from nursing school to go Mm -hmm. on my deployment. You come back and you sort of realize that you're a little changed and because of your experiences and the reintegration process is important because you're so used to rigidity, I think, and mm-hmm. process and doing something that's very uh, real. Mm-hmm. And then you go back into college life and then you're you have a different perspective on the world and you suddenly real you feel as though everyone else's problems are so minuscule <laughs> because right. it's like, right. but do you guys know what's happening over here? That type of thing. So it's like a reintegration. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of put, put things in perspective. Uh, you had a perspective that maybe your classmates didn't have. Yes. Yeah. A lot of my friends felt that way, particularly if they went back to like college. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I mean, college life is a whole, it's its own little animal. I feel like it's a great time <laughs> in your life. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you feel like you and Jason, when you have those four month separations, while well, one or both of you are deployed, um, when you get to be close together again, is it, is it strange at first? Maybe a little, just cause it's surreal, mm-hmm. but, uh, and maybe this is, a validating thing that I'm with the right person. I think I, there was so less awkwardness, right? Like when I went, when we got back together after being separated for our other deployment. Mm-hmm. So I'm very hopeful that that won't be too <laughs> awkward when she comes home. Yeah, Just the surrealness of seeing her in person as opposed to FaceTime or whatever. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. Being able to hug and kiss and, you know, smell them and all the things that you have. I know. So long. Yeah. We, we've, we've kind of looked at this deployment as a little marinade for us both mm-hmm. to kind of, you know, immerse ourselves into the experience that I'm having here in school and clinicals and her experience of traveling around the Middle East and, and doing her thing. Um, it's just an opportunity for growth. Yeah. Opposed to just sitting about and being incredibly sad all the time. Yeah. We look at it as an opportunity. Yeah. It seems like a very, very healthy way to look at it. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Now, what about the dogs? How do you, how do they react when one of you returns home from a long deployment? Oh my goodness, <laughs> meltdown! <laughs> Just a Penny, we could leave the house for ten minutes, mm-hmm. and you come back, and Penny, oh, she has to get a toy. She's got to present you a gift. She gets up and she does this little clap with her hands, and she, she's gonna have a 
uh, a meltdown. She cries. It's really oh. sweet. So I will film it. <laughs> yes, I love it's gonna to be. <laughs> it's going to be super, super sweet. Mm-hmm. Charlie's like, hey, I remember you. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <you're> back. <laughs> oh, nice. Thank you. Thanks for coming oh. back. Penny's got a meltdown. I knew you would. <laughs> yeah. You usually do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So far, that's been your habit. So I'm pretty sure that's how we continue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so funny. That's a fair. Those are very um, different reactions from the two dogs. Yes. We yeah. sometimes we kid around where Charlie has no loyalty, you know, but oh, she does. Well. She does. <laughs> Was Penny the one that had the separation anxiety? Yeah. Okay. So that, that kind of makes sense why she reacts in such a dramatic way compared to Charlie's yeah. more. She was abandoned twice at the pound. So she has like extra abandonment issues. I think. That is so sad. I know. (laughs) I don't know how people can do that. I shouldn't pass judgment, but I, I I couldn't do it. (laughs) I know. Same. And they named her Alakazam. Who does that? (laughs) Alakazam? I guess you have to call her like Al for short or something. Yeah. Alakazam is her actual registered name (laughs) with her chip. Does she answer to that? Not at all. Okay. She what was, she, was she anything besides Alakazam and Penny? Were there names in between? No, she was Penny at the pound. And so she responded to it. So we kept it. And it's a cute name. Yeah, it is a cute name. I like the vet told us she was like, she's registered and she has a chip and all that. And her name is Alakazam. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> Clearly, she's better off with you guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we were meant for each other. Yes, obviously. <laughs> well, is there anything uh, that we haven't hit on or discussed that you were hoping you would have the opportunity to talk about today? Um, the thing that I think I would like to pass on, and we talked about it a li- uh, pretty at length about people finding their authenticity and all of that recently in the news with a lot of um i would say extremist kind of religious people uh making public statements or going viral regarding their desire to have lgbt people shot as as one pastor said that can be very traumatizing for our community Uh and i understand how isolating it may feel for any person of the lgbtq community that is an adolescent now or younger, or just a young adult that may live in a community where they feel they can't be themselves. Mm-hmm. I would say that I was them, and there is an amazing life that you can have when you just embrace who you are truly. And there's hope, there's beauty in being yourself. It's the most, to me, that's what success is. Success is kind of blissfully subjective. You get a kind of, you get to say what it is for you. And if you can find a way to accept yourself and who you are truly, to me, that's success. Um, And try to drown out the noise that people throw at you and just embrace who you are because there's nothing wrong with you. That's beautiful. Thank you. I did. um, What you were saying just now made me think, I mean, navigating the LGBTQ plus world can be very tricky for a lot of different reasons. And when you were talking about when you first saw Jaysa, you were just struck by her. You know, it occurred to me, something that heterosexuals don't really have to think about ever or often is whether or not someone's orientation is going to align with theirs, because chances are it will. So when you are a lesbian or gay or, or you know, a different orientation other than heterosexual, is that something that's tricky to navigate to? I mean, like, 
how do you know if a person that you're interested in shares the same orientation that you do? Well, ironically, when I saw Jason for the first time, I was like, she's, she's straight. (laughs) I think that that's a good question. And I think that it is evolving. People stereotypically talk about like the quote unquote gaydar. I mean, gaydar is really anything that you can identify as like a stereotype, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I've had many people tell me I don't look like a lesbian, quote unquote. (laughs) You're like, uh, is that that supposed to be a compliment or an insult or what are we doing? Yeah, I think the best thing that people could do, at least in our generation, is just be yourself. And if you're interested in someone, just politely ask someone out. And, you know, if they reject that, okay. But what's what I say it's evolving is I see like the Gen Z's on TikTok and everything. They are far more open to fluidity. Mm-hmm. And it's not like a weird thing for them to be asked out by the same sex or something. You know, they're mm-hmm. just like, oh, it, it's there are so many people out there with, you know, uh, fluid orientation or identity, gender identity or whatever. And they don't I guess they don't think about it that much. I think that our generation and older has had to put ourselves in categories, mm-hmm. which then gives us the stereotypes of, you know, you don't look like a lesbian, for example. Right, right. So shoot your shot and then (laughs) just be you, you know? Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's definitely, I think our generations are maybe kind of caught in the middle of it. Like we're not quite as, we don't see things quite as compartmentalized maybe as the generations prior to us. But as a whole, it's maybe not as easy to, th- to see things as fluid as, you know, people younger than us might. But I do think that in general, there's a move to kind of see this on a spectrum as yeah. opposed to, you know, straight or gay. You know, maybe straight is on one end of the spectrum and gay is on the other. And it's a it's a spectrum of where people can fall on that on that scale, I guess. Yeah. Well, and bisexual people have kind of really been hit hard because we try to fit people in categories or label for a long time. And even in the beginning, I felt like this by bisexual people just picked <laughs> aside. Oh, <laughs> but, but that's, which is terrible, but there, it, it just kind of demonstrates that spectrum of fluidity. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, cause I'm, re- I'm reading this wonderful book, a queer history in America. Mm-hmm. And it talks about how gender fluid and role fluid, if you will, gender role indigenous people in the United States were in America was they were men would just integrate with women and dress like women and just live their life. And nobody thought it was strange or weird, Mm -hmm. but you have these social hierarchies and um, sexual ethics that are applied to people that have kind of created this rigid labeling. Mm -hmm. Um, When really I think that we're all just, more fluid than we give ourselves credit for. And, and not any one person is the same. Right. And maybe those labels hinder people's, uh, you know, labels are very powerful to the human mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, they really are. I mean, I think if you peg yourself a certain way, it can be hard to even imagine that you might not be that way. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. I'm not expressing it very well. It's a thought that's a little infant in my brain, but um, I think labels can be so self handicapping. Yes, absolutely. Labels are symbols, right? I mean, they they signify a meaning. And so if you are a lesbian, then you 
would fit into this box, right? This category. And if you deviate from that, then are you betraying your label, you know? Right. And does it matter? (laughs) It doesn't really matter. And I think that's why people um, have reclaimed the word queer. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I grew up, queer was it was not a good term. It was, I was, say, it, was it was an insult when I was growing up. You did not want yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. And now they, we've, you know, we claim queer. And I think queer is more representative of the fluidity, mm-hmm. um, a, a lack of label, if you will. Cause what is queer? It's, mm-hmm. you know, or you can be gay, you can be like, you can be whatever you want, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, gosh, we could philosophize about this for hours. I feel like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I had about five different thoughts related to that while you were saying them, but I was listening so intently. They've all left. They'll come back to me, you know, in a couple hours when we're not talking anymore. (laughs) That's okay. I'll have to email you if I think of them later. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time and your openness and your, and your flexibility. Uh, Listeners don't know this, but we had to reschedule this interview to today kind of at the last minute. So I, I very much appreciate that you were, were able to make that work. Well, of course, I really appreciate the opportunity. I've enjoyed this immensely. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of If She Can Do It, So Can You. If you like what you heard, please consider making a donation to support our podcast at buymeacoffee.com backslash if she can do it. That's buymeacoffee.com backslash I-F-S-H-E-C-A-N-D-O-I-T-S. Your donation supports the uplifting and empowering content that we produce. If you know an amazing woman who you think we should feature on a future episode of If She Can Do It, So Can You, please shoot me an email at ifshecandoitsocanyou at gmail.com. I also invite you to check out our website, ifshecandoitsocanyou.wordpress.com and pay us a visit on Instagram at ifshecandoitsocanyou. Big thanks goes out to Brad Fire of Rad Fire Productions for editing this podcast. It would absolutely not be possible without his editing expertise. Another big thanks goes out to Ashley Unger, who produces all the artwork for this podcast. I look forward to seeing you on our next episode on the first of next month. And remember, if she can do it, so can you. <laughs>